I'm feeling ill and would fear that if I stood, I would face plant into the table. So I shall be sitting for the first, uh, for this. Not, not trying to get comfortable. I'm not going to do a 25-minute sermon. Don't worry. Uh, those of you who have been here for a while, I've already kind of given part of my testimony, I guess, because I kind of spoke more towards my sinful nature and my, in respect to that as far as my past goes. And that really kind of belongs to, that belongs to Jesus and that belongs to Satan for controlling my life for so long. So this time when I give my testimony, I want to give, my, give the glory to God and the people that he used in my life. So this is to them. Uh, essentially, just quick little recap a little bit. Uh, when I was about eight, nine years old or whatever, I went to a Bible camp. A uh, counselor spoke to me about Christ. At that time, I kind of tearfully gave my life to him. But then when I went home, I uh, kind of forgot that I had done so, but God hadn't. So there was no, I didn't go to church after that. I didn't really do anything, but God consistently kind of a little bit, a little bit here and there put, his, put himself in my life until finally I went to another Bible camp when I was about 16 years old and a time in my life when I absolutely hated him and uh, essentially was looking to run away from him. And that weekend, I was, or that week I was baptized and gave myself to him. Uh, but the thing is, is, if it wasn't for the community, when I came back to Clyde from that camp, the same thing would have happened as when I was a little kid. The difference between then when I was younger and from when I was 16 was because when I came back, I started attending a youth group, and the people who were leading the youth group really dedicated themselves to making sure that I stayed in that foundation of Christ and stayed in the church. Uh, so I didn't really make it too easy for them. Uh, I kind of made life a little uncomfortable is probably the, the best way to put it for a few specific families. And this is kind of the real story of it. Uh, I like to call this part of my life, uh, for Christ's sake, be awkward. Uh, essentially what happened was... Uh, there, was, there are a few specific families that I really kind of latched on to in really an awkward kind of way. <laughs> one of them was the Fraser family who said, uh, one time I went over to their house and they said, our door is always open to you. And so I took full advantage of it and went into their house and made it my own. They weren't always home. <laughs> In fact, they would quite often come home and see my car in their driveway and see me on the couch watching TV and eating the food out of their fridge. Uh, but not once did they ever complain about it. In fact, they would say, hey, Kevin, how's it going? How are you doing today? And just very lovingly accepted the fact that I was at a place who was better than my own house that was full of um, sadness, depression, uh, a place not of Christ, and they recognized that their place was a place of Christ. So they eventually they even offered me a bedroom in their house to, for me to move out of my own house with my parents to move into their house so that way they could probably raise me in Christ a little bit better. Uh, another family was the Lance family where I loved to, I had a motorbike and I had a skidoo out on my farm and 
I would just take off and I would just go. And my mom would always make me bring a cell phone just in case I broke down, I could call them. And uh, I would always use that cell phone to call the Lance family and be like, hey, I'm about a 10 minute bike ride away from your house. Mind if I stop by? And every single time the answer was yes. Even if it was a birthday supper for the father, I was invited all of a sudden and there was room at the table. I imagine that was probably quite awkward considering the father himself wasn't a Christian, but the rest of his family was. It, those are just like, I think of Jesus at that time. Like even way, way back, Jesus was walking down the road and he would just point to somebody and say, I'm eating at your house. How many times do we invite somebody over and spend three, four days cleaning just in case they might come over hoping they don't cancel? And here's the Son of God is saying, I'm eating at your house now. Don't care the conditions. Don't care what you have prepared. Nothing. I'm eating at your house. And the rest of the people at that church, those two specific families in general, really took that message to heart and made their house a house of God. Uh, the best story I could probably give that's probably the most awkward one which I never even none of the stuff I ever thought of until recently like I never realized how how big of a weirdo I kind of was to these to this church and to this families until I started thinking back and being like I would never do that I would I, I think I would probably say no to a lot of the things I was asking those families to do but the best story is uh, when I was about 17 years old. Yeah, I think I was 17. So I'd only been Christian for about a year, year and a half maybe. And uh, my grandfather passed away. And I don't know what brought me to it. I, I assume it wasn't even me. But I asked Christy Fraser, who had kind of been a mother and a mentor to me, and uh, I asked her, I was like, can you come to my grandfather's funeral? And she kind of hummed and hawed a bit, and then the next day she gave me a call and said, yes, I'm coming. And she asked for the, she said that she'd find out all the information from the newspapers and stuff like that. Now, my grandfather's funeral was in Edmonton, and I lived an hour, we lived an hour north of Edmonton, so it was a bit of a drive for her to find this place, church that she'd never been to, and all that kind of stuff, and I didn't even know it at the time, but she actually had probably had to take a day off of work without pay to come to my grandfather's funeral. And the only people she knew in my family was me and my brother, because this was my dad's side of the family. She never really met them at all. And so I remember being at the funeral and just being lost, empty. And uh, as we're leaving... We're walking out the doors, and the, the doors are quite similar to these ones, actually. And the foyer, very similar to the church that the funeral was held at. And at the bottom of the stairs, just before you kind of get to the exit, there was Christy. She was standing right there. And I was so excited that I literally yelled out, Christy! And about halfway down the steps, I jumped into her arms, like three, four steps. See, and she caught me which kind of is a testament to her strengths. Cause I, but she is a good farm girl. I mean, yeah. Uh, and probably made her feel really awkward <laughs> that out of nowhere, somebody's yelling her name and everybody is staring at her going, who is this? 
And I just hugged her and I thanked her for coming and I went out to the limo because they were going to take us to the burial site. And as I was sitting in the limo, I was like, I looked out and I saw her kind of standing there awkwardly in front of the church, kind of just twiddling her fingers, not you know, kind of waiting for everybody to leave so she could leave. And I ran out there and I said, Christy, can you come to the burial site with us? And she's like, well, I don't, I don't know where the burial site is. I said, it doesn't matter. You just follow. You, just, you get behind us and you follow. And she's just like, ah, okay, all right, I'll do it. So picture that uh, there's the, the hearse, limo, limo, Christy Fraser, <laughs> And then the rest of the people. And she did it. And she came up to the burial site and she stood beside me or near me, not necessarily right beside me, but, uh, and then after that, I was like, you have to come for lunch, you have to come, you have to come and eat with me, and she said, okay, you know what, yeah, yeah, I'd do it, yeah, let's do it, and so she very, this is where everything got really awkward, because she couldn't just avoid my family all of a sudden, now she had to, like, speak to them, and introduce herself to my entire family, and I remember she went and left away to get some, get some more food, and everybody in my family, my aunts, my dad, my brothers, all looked at me and they said, "Are you two dating?" <laughs> She's about ten years my elder, so <laughs> really, really weird. And I was like, "No, no, she's just a great friend." And I just, I think back on that moment now, and I realize that it was situations like those that that she was willing to not care about what other people thought about her, that she recognized that I needed her there to be that Christian presence, to be that Christ in my life, to, and to not be held back by fear of what other people are going to think of her or what might be said about her or anything like that, and to even be missing a day's wage to do it. And I realized that I... If it wasn't for people like her in my life, I wouldn't be here in my life. I would be dead or somewhere else. And just think, if, if you're volunteering in the youth program, would you be willing to do that for me? If you're just a member of this church, would you be willing to give me a key to your house and say, hey, it's yours. Stop by any time. To some, some youth kid. If the answer is no, then I might not be here. Here, that's it. I'm going to invite you to stand now for the reading of God's Word. Caitlin's going to come, I think, and read. understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. 
So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. I mean that nothing good lives in me in the part of me that is earthly and sinful. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's in living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. You can be seated. In Mumbai, India, a young girl who had been trafficked from the north and had been missing for three years was finally tracked down by officials and by an international justice agency, and they rescued her from a brothel where she had been held captive, and she said on her release that she had not seen the sun for three years. In northern India, there was a man named Avtar Singh who had sold himself and his wife and their son to work as laborers uh, in security against a loan that he had taken out. Avtar died not too long after that and left his widow and his son kept in conditions of poverty and continuing to labor and to do so in such a way that there was no possibility that the loan could be repaid, and in fact, it was gaining interest. They were captive. They were owned. There are an estimated 27 million slaves in the world. The human trafficking sex trade is alive and well in Southeast Asia, and don't kid yourselves, in Canada and in Calgary. Slaves, including children, are bought and sold in Western Africa, and in the Sudan, cane cutters in the Dominican Republic, carpet weavers in India, and so on. Slaves. We are considering the gospel here in these weeks from several different angles, trying to get some grasp of the fullness of the gospel. And as we do that, we are getting a picture, a fuller picture of the nature of sin of the greatness of God's grace and of the enormous significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Two weeks ago, the courtroom gospel. We have broken God's laws and are therefore guilty. Christ on the cross bore our punishment. And on that basis, the sentence upon us has been lifted and God now reckons us as innocent. It's justification. Last week, the life and death gospel. We were dead in sin. Christ died in our place. And God has made us alive in Christ. That's regeneration. Today, we're going to look at the gospel from the framework of slavery. This is redemption. Adam and Eve disobeyed, disobeyed the word of God under whose lordship they were called to live Thus, sin entered the world when they disobeyed God. And as unholy sin must necessarily mar the image of God that we had been created in, Adam and Eve now bore 
the image of sin. Their nature was now sinful. The DNA of sin was now part of the human condition. Adam and Eve's son Cain murdered his brother Abel. As an example of ongoing sinfulness of Adam's descendants, Genesis records a man named Lamech gloating over the fact that he had gained revenge on somebody who had wronged him, gaining revenge by killing this man. By the time we get to Genesis 6, we read this, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Humanity was now wholly enslaved to sin. Every area of their lives was not only tainted by sin, but captive to it. Sin was their default position. It was the defining reality of all that they did and said and thought. Sin was their master. And God judged them for sin with a great judgment in the time of the flood. But sin retained its hold on humanity so that humans at the Tower of Babel and cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and even whole nations like Canaan were given entirely over to sin. The New Testament talks of this explicitly in slavery terms. In Romans 6, you were once slaves to sin. You once presented your bodies as slaves to impurity. You were slaves of sin, and so on. And we have just heard from the scriptures what that slavery looks like. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever been faced with an opportunity to sin, knowing you should not, wanting not to sin, and yet giving yourself to it, feeling like you could not say no? Have you ever said to yourself or to somebody else, I couldn't help it? Some of you might remember Flip Wilson and his character Geraldine and her famous tagline, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil hasn't made you do anything. We are not captive to Satan, but to sin. It comes from within. Even if I want to do what is right, sin does not let me. The computer makes sin so available I can't resist. That money is so easy to keep. Maybe I won't pay it back. Maybe I'll just not let the government know about that. I'm in the right. I'm totally justified in my anger and my grudge and my dwelling on this wrong. So-and-so really knows how to push my buttons. I can't help but lose my temper. I can't help it. That is how it used to be and had to be because sin controlled us completely. And yet in Jesus, things have become different. Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer anything called, I can't help it. Think of the last time that you sinned. An angry reaction to something or to someone, and you paid it back in kind. Stewing on an offense and feeling self-justified. Shading the truth. You had a choice. You could help it. No one makes you angry. We begin to see this theme of rescue from slavery in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament. Exodus is the great, it's the gospel of the Old Testament, of people enslaved. Brought to freedom by a deliverer, God calling them to be his own special people. God comes to dwell among them as they make their way to a new and beautiful land. That's the Bible story in miniature. And it's the story of Exodus. Exodus begins with the Israelites in Egypt as slave laborers. The Pharaoh has become increasingly afraid of their increasing numbers. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities and the city of Ramses. The Egyptians were in dread of the Israelites, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And this goes on for a few centuries and creates a nation of slaves. But God raises up a deliverer in the person of Moses, and after a string of supernatural displays of God's power, God, who is the God of Israel and of Egypt and of all things, Moses then leads them out, a free people. In that event, and the soon-to-follow covenant with God made at Mount Sinai, completed and secured their status as a nation of God's chosen people. But in the Israelite narrative, we quickly see that though they have been freed from slavery in Egypt, they are still slaves. Slaves to that greater slavery, which is sin. Within days, they were angrily murmuring against Moses and against God, thinking even that Moses and God had conspired to lead them out of Egypt just in order to kill them in the wilderness. After just weeks, even with the presence and the glory of God visible before them, they build an idol and worship it. They disobey when God commands them not to enter the promised land. Then they immediately disobey when God says, fine, don't enter the promised land. They threaten to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. And finally, when they end up in the promised land, The repeated pattern is to reject God entirely over and over again and eventually to become entirely pagan themselves, violently and morally depraved. No longer under Pharaoh's whip, they are clearly still very much enslaved. But having delivered them from one slavery, God has already put into motion his plan to deliver them from the greater slavery. And with Israel in the wilderness, the Bible now introduces this language of redemption. To redeem means to pay a price, 
to buy back someone or something that someone else rightfully lays claim to. To pay a price to buy back someone or something that someone else rightfully lays claim to. Sometimes the one redeemed originally belonged to God. God, for example, was owed the first fruits of everything and claimed as his rightful due then even the firstborn son of every family. Oldest sons belonged to God. And in theory, this would have meant the sacrifice of those sons. But God said that the life of the oldest son could be redeemed by the sacrifice of an animal. And the animal became the price paid in order to redeem the man's life. And the man was then free to live, to marry, to build, to carry on business, to lie on the couch and watch football with a plate of nachos, and to do all the things that men do. A firstborn animal, a donkey, for example, if it was considered necessary to the livelihood of its owner, the animal could be redeemed also by a lamb. If a poor man who is in desperate circumstances and sold himself to someone else as a slave, just in order to survive, he could be redeemed by someone. He could even redeem himself by eventually paying back the price at which was set for him. If a land was sold in a time of poverty, the original owner had a right to redeem it, to buy it back within a set period of time. In the book of Ruth, there is a man who is a near relative of Ruth's dead husband, And this man, therefore, had the right both to marry Ruth and then to lay claim to the property of her former husband. But a man named Boaz buys those rights from this man and marries Ruth himself. He is her kinsman redeemer, is what he is called, and so on. To redeem is to pay a price to release someone or something from someone else's claim to them. To pay a price to release someone or something from someone else's claim to them. In our day, when someone gives himself to do something good, and that something releases him from the right of others to hold a poor opinion of him, we say that he has redeemed himself. David said in Psalm 14, this was affirmed later by the Apostle Paul, That there is, this is slavery, there is no one who is good. All have turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David recognized the enslaving nature of sin. But the Psalms also say, truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. That's humanity, enslaved to sin, but with no one to redeem us. We are now quickly coming up on the Christmas season. And Matthew, in chapter 1 and verse 21, an angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. Save is the language of rescue. The name Jesus, Greek, or Yeshua, Aramaic, that's what Jesus' people would have called him, Yeshua. The name means the Lord saves. Now, the Jews expected a Savior who would deliver them from Roman oppression, but Jesus came as a Savior, the angel said, to deliver, deliver his people from the greater oppressor, sin. Now, what would this rescue look like? How would it take place? What would Jesus do? If you're going to rescue somebody from Roman oppression, you raise up an army and you rebel. But how does one deliver from sin? If no man can redeem another, if his very life is not sufficient to buy anyone's freedom from sin, and why not, by the way, because his own life is riddled with sin. I know several people who have either stomach or throat or brain or lung or pancreatic cancer, respectively. Now, if a transplant was possible, what if I was willing to give my life to rescue somebody from stomach cancer by donating my stomach and doing a transplant? What would be the point if my own stomach was riddled with cancer? I couldn't save them. With the all-pervasive sin having infected and held captive every human life, how can one of us rescue another? What man can redeem another? Chris Rice has a song with these words. Was I the only one to notice that human nature doesn't work that way? They tell me if I look deep inside me that I can find my own way. But I only find a rebel and a fool there who won't admit that he's afraid. I thought I was holding on to freedom, but locked my soul up in chains. I need a hero who will dare to find me, fly to my rescue, crash through the wall, announce my freedom, bring me to my senses, gather me into his strong arms, and carry me off to safety. What does this talk about a savior? Does he listen? Is he really even there? And should I be asking him directly? But why should he consider my prayer? Well, I don't know how to do this, but Jesus, I can't save myself. So here I go calling for your mercy and crying out for your help. Now, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about a better kind of slavery, a voluntary slavery in which people seek not to elevate themselves over others, but rather willingly and humbly to serve others. And Jesus points to himself as an example of such willing servanthood, and then he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is a man at last who is able to redeem the life of another. Here is a man whose life is of sufficient value that he can give his life to God and secure the freedom of another. To an infinitely righteous and holy God into whose presence no sin can enter, here is a man whose righteousness can be applied to others to such an extent that by his life, He can rescue man from sin and usher them into God's presence. 
Jesus came to earth from heaven, the perfect Son of God, sent to be the Savior of the world. He was tempted, but did not sin. In every temptation, unlike Adam, Jesus consciously chose to do the will of his Father. He always chose obedience. He never sold himself into slavery to sin. He was the only free person who has ever lived. He was the only one on the outside who could act to rescue those on the inside, held behind the bars, the jail, the prison of sin. And so he did. Jesus gave his own perfect life of infinite worth by virtue of his divinity and his sinlessness, gave his life as a ransom. He freed captives from sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Revelation 5, You, Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the New Testament then is riddled with language, familiar language to us, of redemption. Jesus is the redeemer who redeemed us. And so we have redemption. Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption by his blood. Titus 2. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Purify for Purify us for himself, for his own possession. Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus, by his own blood, secured for us an eternal redemption. Now imagine freedom. Imagine yourself a slave. Okay, you're working at hard labor from sunup to sundown and beyond. Not permitted to leave your shabby bunk in the compound. And we might chuckle and say to ourselves, well, I already do that at my job. No, you don't. We have no idea what that is like. Ladies, and this is awful, but I mean this, think what would it be like for you to spend every night, month after month after month, in the same room and with a different man. And if you step out of line, you get beaten. Imagine if you had been sold by your parents when you were six years old and started working in 12-hour shifts in a factory. Even in our culture, sometimes we hear the occasional news story of somebody who has been held captive in a room or even chained up for a period of time, and we are rightly horrified when we read about that. This is slavery, and this is a reality all over the world. And the slavery of sin is that kind of slavery. More horrific than I think we often realize. Now imagine, what does it feel like for one who has been a slave to be set free? What did it feel like for that girl to see the sun for the first time in three years? And to be embraced by her brother whom she had not seen in three years? What did it feel like for that woman and her son to be rescued from forced labor, 
given a future? What does it feel like for a kidnapped or stolen or sold child to be picked up in the arms of their hero and carried off to freedom? We have been set free. We have been set free. Do we know what that means? It means that we are no longer helpless in the face of temptation. It means that we can say no to sin and walk away from it. It means that sin can tempt but no longer control. It can entice but it cannot enslave. But here's a surprising thing about our freedom. We have not been set free from sin in order to live for ourselves. To live entirely for ourselves simply means that we are not, in fact, free from sin. We are freed from sin in order that we might be slaves to God. Worshippers and joyful servants under the greater master. I quoted earlier from Romans 6 and the references to slavery. Here are those verses more completely. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your bodies as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness... So now present your bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And then in the verses that follow our reading this morning. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am who will, rest, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But it is surprising, isn't it, to hear that release from slavery from sin means another slavery, this time to God and to righteousness. It may also be surprising to know that this slavery is, in fact, real freedom. That's why the Apostle Paul, who frequently referred to himself as a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, is also the very one who spoke the most passionately about our freedom in Christ. It's like the fish, after being captured by the fisherman's hook and brought into the unlimited space of the open air, is thrown back and finds freedom in the boundaries of the water. The child, the prostitute, 
rescued from the enslavement of her owner in a brothel in Mumbai, is rescued by those who are committed to the law. And she finds freedom under a law that is there to protect and to keep her. Now, there are those who are convinced that living under God's lordship is a burden, that it's restrictive. But that's where real life is. That's where real freedom is. I mean, so often we see people who are living lives that are unnecessarily painful, living out what follows from their own choices. And in my wife's words, if only they would know God's ways are better. To live and to make choices outside of the lordship of God is not to live. That is not freedom at all. We all know people. We all know people, even Christians, who seem to lack wisdom and make choices with no thought for God's ways, and their lives are harder for it. Jesus said this about slavery to himself. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Set free from slavery to sin. The two best friends of sin are death and fear. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, partook of the same things, that is, flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does our freedom mean? It means a number of things. As we are freed from slavery to sin, and therefore we are freed from hell and the judgment of God, we are also free from fear. We are free from the fear of death. We are free from the fear of what other people will think of us. We are free to be generous. We are free to love. We are free from the fear of somehow failing God. We are free to take risks. We are free to be at ease and to be at rest. What is it that you're afraid of this morning? What is your fear? Some, it might be the fear of death. Some, it might be fear 
that your children will grow up in a world that is hard and be either beaten down by it or walk away from God in it. Some of you have fear for your own future and are trying to guard what you have so that you will be safe. Some of you are fearful of the call of God on your life to go somewhere and do something. We all have a fear at some level. Christ has come and given his life for us as a ransom to redeem us from slavery to sin and all that goes with it. Fear. Pain. Pain of the heart. Fear for the future. The reality of temptation. Death. And he has given to us a future and hope and joy and peace and life. Whatever your fear is, whatever your burden is this morning, come to Jesus. Take his yoke upon you. For his burden is light. And you will find that as you are yoked, To the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have tasted freedom, maybe for the first time. Christ has redeemed us. And I hope that as we go from here, we will walk in the joy and the freedom of that redemption. Amen. Let me pray. Sometimes, Lord, it's when we look across the world and hear the stories of developing nations that we think of slavery. And maybe it's there that we find our most graphic images and accounts of what real slavery looks like. And in our own culture, we might forget that slavery to sin is as severe or more severe. And I get comfortable I forget what slavery I have, in fact, been redeemed from. And I pray this morning for all of us that we would have a very clear, almost jarring sense of our slavery to sin and what you have saved us from. And with that, a clear picture of your love, Father, and your death, Jesus and what that means for us. Enable us to walk in freedom by your Spirit, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Let us live as free people and demonstrate freedom to other people and share the Redeemer with them. We give you thanks. We ask for your help. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And yes, as you go from here, go reflecting, go thinking, go thankful for the redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus. And know what it means to live in freedom this week. Go in peace and know that the Lord goes with you. Amen. We're dismissed.